Okay, welcome back everybody to RYP Radio. Um, it's been a while since we've been in the studio here, but I've got a special guest today that uh, is kind of like one of those big gets when you get somebody that you just never thought you'd be able to talk to. Uh, on the line telephonically is Marlon Whaley, who was a uh, five-time national champion in the U.S. back in the, the 70s. And we're going to hear from him about... Um, you know where where he got into trials and and some of his past history. I hear a little bit about the the special bike that that uh, is at the AMA and and uh, kind of what he's doing today. Marlon, how you doing today? Very well, thank you. How you doing, Brad? Oh, great! So happy you could call in and and let us get a little look into the past and and uh, current and future for you. Oh, my pleasure. Um. You know, just kind of getting a background of you. Uh, if you could go all the way back to when you first got into motorcycling um, and kind of give us the a look at, you know, how that developed into you actually uh, starting to ride a trials bike. Well, it's kind of funny. My, my father was always into motorcycles, um, just on a uh, recreational basis, and... Uh, Oh, gosh, when I was really young, I remember him having a uh, Triumph road bike, and also he had an AJS that he rode in the dirt. Um, now you know I'm really old. But uh, anyway, we we I, I was always very large for my size, and he had gotten me, my parents got me a Suzuki 80. And I want to say around probably I was 10 or so um, he was always into motorcycling and, and subscribed to various uh, motorcycle publications, Cycle World, and since the beginning, in fact, I think he's got the original issue. Um, but as far as the trial goes, it was, I remember seeing a guy uh, many moons ago, um after I had started riding, who was across the field. We lived across the field where you could cross the main boulevard, but then once you got to this field, you could, you know, you had access to a lot of area. And I remember watching the guy, um, I think he was riding like an old uh, Boltaco. And, you know, he was riding slow. He had the English cap on and the whole bit. And uh, I was curious what he was doing, you know, and, and my father knew all about it, of course, and because he was really into it, and he also got a lot of English publications, so he knew very well what Trials was and and was interested in it, and so I watched this guy and thought it was kind of cool and went out and imitated him and, you know, kind of rode through the same stuff he did with my bike later when no one was around, and one thing led to another. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, we went to a to a trials in uh, at Miramar in San Diego, and watched one and saw. I mean, a lot of the people that uh, Bob Nicholson, for instance, was there. I watched Mark Yeager. I was telling Jeff Kosky. Uh, recently that uh, I had seen him on his old Saracen, and I thought, what a neat bike that was at the time. And that that set the hook. When I saw the actual event and uh, how it how it worked, 
Um, I was just really uh, intrigued by it. Then uh, I think I wrote my very first one at Barona on a, when it was a hundred and some degrees down in the hole, high DNF rate, and I had a Hodaka 100 <laughs> was how I uh, what I debuted on, and of course it was not really a, a trial spike and kind of a tough way to start. Um, the sections were pretty much over my head at the time, and uh, but anyway, um, never looked back. At that point, it just gravitated to the old Big Hub Montessa, um, and on we went. So, so yeah, it was uh, a slow evolutionary process doing it with uh, bikes that really weren't suited and eventually ended up with a specialized bike that, uh, again, full-size motorcycle because uh, I was fairly tall, sprung up young um, fairly quickly to size and uh, was able to ride a full-size bike at the time. And Did you, and, did uh, you, yeah. start, did you start in a novice class? Were there classes back yeah. then or just everybody rode the same thing? Uh, this was a this was a novice class, and uh, and as I said, it went through a lot of water. There was a lot of I remember going through the the river bottom there, and uh, I was one of many that DNF that day. Uh, it was just incredibly hot, and uh, it was difficult, and I just I didn't have the bike for it. Um, by any means, and really uh, just green and young. So, but it still lit uh, the fire. It did. I I I I tend to gravitate towards things that uh, that I don't do well at at first because it irks me that I can't, and I'm thinking I can, and so uh, yeah, I've kind of made it even stronger because I thought, you know what? I saw people do it. I need to be able to do this. And so uh, when you see it is possible and you failed, you feel like you failed miserably, then it's like, okay, well, what's wrong? And so, yeah, um, I, was, I, I didn't lose uh, any interest whatsoever. So uh, just, just going back a section, let me ask you a couple, or a second, let me ask you a couple hard questions. How old are you today? Today, I am going to be 59 in about a month, month and a half, excuse me. Okay. And where do you currently live? I live in Hamilton, Montana. It's on the west side of the state, uh, almost to the border. I'm south of Missoula by uh, about uh, 40 miles. And, uh, you know, I mean, I can, I can basically see in the mountains, I can see the uh, Idaho side of the border. That's how close I am. Okay, and, and you started out in California, correct? That's where you were born? Absolutely, San Diego. San Diego. All right. Um, so, so you're now into trials. You've ridden your first event. You're novice, frustrated, wanting to get better. What were some of your early successes? I mean, you, you finally got a trials bike. I heard you say big, big hub Montessas. Uh, that yep. was that was your first bike that you got that was actually purpose built for trials. Yes, I believe it. I believe it's a 1970 year model is what it was, and uh, 
So as far as successes go, started at the SDTR, the San Diego Trials Writers uh, Association. I started doing some of their events again at Miramar and um, up at where we used to ride in at uh, Barona, which is in Ramona, California. Barona is the Indian reservation that it's uh, on the property. And uh, wrote a lot of those, but then, uh, well, started with a few of those, I should say, then branched out and started doing the whole Southern California route of going to L.A., um, Saddleback Park, Ritchie Canyon, um, up Tribuco Canyon. Uh, there were several places. The boat events were uh, a little further north. Uh, north of Los Angeles. So it didn't take long before we started doing all of them that were within that 150-mile radius. And there were quite a few at the, at the time. You could hit a lot uh, in in a you know fairly short radius. Was this like in 1970 then or right yeah. around there? Okay. Yes. And who were the big, who were the big names in trials and people that you were like saying, oh, I'll never be as good as that. Yeah. Well, uh, Bob Nicholson was was one that was doing very well. Richard Bledsoe was another. Um, Lane Levitt and Richard Bledsoe were the two uh, that went uh, neck and neck a lot, um, back and forth. There were, there were just a lot of people at that time that were uh, quite a bit better than I was through experience. You know, Jeff Kosky was another one that uh, that was quite good at the time. Um, uh, God, Mark Dager was very good at the time. He had an OSA, and uh, it, it just there were there were quite a few that I looked up to. But I have to say, at the time, for sure. The best was was Richard Bledsoe um, locally, and then once in a while Lane Levitt would come down from Northern California and participate, and uh, was was every bit as good, if not better. So, so did you win some of the different classes on your way up, like beginner yeah, and it, intermediate? And... Yeah, it, it it took some time, um, but yes, it. it uh, I can't tell you. I wanted to say maybe it took about a year to get the first win, um, and then and then it's you know it, it started happening more frequently. You know, you wouldn't always win, but um, you know, then you once you figured out how to win, it's like anything, and then it starts to become a little bit simpler. It's just breaking that glass ceiling for the first time. And then when did you finally win the top class class at your local events? Um, gosh, in the Southern California, how, uh, gosh, when did I win the, the, the number one place? I want to say, uh, had to be, hmm, maybe 72 or three. Because I was riding for Honda in 75, and it had to be well before that. So, uh, because that's when I was doing well at, at a national level. So, I, I got to think 73, somewhere around 72, 73. And then I think the California State Championship 
around 74, uh, 73, 74 as well. Uh, so it kind of all started clicking at, at that in that period. Like it was about a two two year learning curve, and that's, then that's a pretty uh, steep curve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but you know, I found if there's something that you really like, you'll find the find a way. At least I do. If I if I get hooked, it's I'm either all in or all out. Uh, uh, it's just the way it is. That become it's it's kind of a it's a blessing and a curse. Um, I've had to give some sports up because it just became obsessive compulsive uh, to the point where uh, I just had to put it down one day and and say, you know what, you can have it, I'm done, um, and move on to something else because it just took over. And uh, so and I'm, I'm that way right now with the cycling for sure. I haven't reached that point where I, I'm, I'm, where I have feel saturated and I don't want to do it. I'm just as enthused as I was, you know, five years ago. But, uh, but I seem to reach that point with everything eventually, and then I never look back and go do something else. So, uh, <laughs> Well, I noticed that it was 1974 you showed up on the national championship, which was the first year that they, they actually ran, ran you're right. NATC. And you finished, you're, you're right. you finished second to lane 11. Correct. Yeah, I remember it was the last event. I remember flying home from that. It was in Oklahoma. I, I do. You, you are correct. And how close, remember, how close was that series? Were you guys close in points, or did Lane pretty much take it from? Uh, I think Lane pretty much took it. Uh, yeah, I, I, at that at that time, he he was extraordinary. He had he had been to Europe, um, and and ridden. He was this mystery man i remember when i started out that there was this guy that you know really took the sport seriously in northern cal from northern california and um he was somewhat of an introvert at the time and and he was just this guy uh he was actually someone that i actually looked up to i i thought it was impressive um when i saw him ride and saw how much better he was than than the rest of us at the time and so he was he was someone to target, if you will, or um, you know, emulate. So I he 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 was in a little different little different level than everybody. He was a little ahead. He he threw a lot at it, you know, practice wise and and dedication wise. So Yeah, so so you were you you were basically two years moving up through through the, the the sport to get to the national series of the NATC. I mean, what did it take to do that? Were you just riding all the time? Is is like you say, you get consumed by something? Did this totally consume you? Um, Cause you had to be a know, high school student at that point. Yeah. Um. You know, I my my father worked with me a lot. We would go out on the weekends and ride uh, a fair amount and uh, you know we would have sections and uh, you know I kind of had a had a rule it was you know we were working with sections that were fairly pretty difficult for the time and for the equipment that we had and 
you know, kind of had a, a little game that I played where, you know, I had to clear it three times before I could move on. Um, and sometimes those sessions went on for a long time. <laughs> you know, I, I, you get it once, twice. Yeah, you know, there would no fail, and uh, it'd be a dab or something would go wrong, and and around and around in relentless pursuit of, uh, you know, trying to perfect it. And a lot of time on the weekends, and not not so much on the weekdays. Um, but uh, with time. As as I got older, uh, then I would go out on my own, of course. And yes, yeah, so it would you know I would I would spend much more time um, doing it. I uh, I actually spend a lot more time when I look at it in comparison what it takes right now for what I'm doing. I incredible amount of time. Sometimes I question the sanity of it all, how much work it is, but. Um, you can't explain something if you if you really like it, and I and I was really into it. I mean, I read every trials book I could get my hands on. I remember somewhere I still have Sammy Miller's original book that he wrote. I have Max King's book, which is the one I really loved. Uh, I remember just looking at this stuff for hours and on end in magazines, and you know, yeah, I was hooked. I, it was a, a lot of. Uh, a lot of time spent wrapped up in it. There wasn't a day went by I didn't think about it. So then, so then you're you're in the nationals. You finished second in the very first NATC championship that was out there. When did you get your break? What was your first sponsored ride where somebody said, you know, here's here's a bike, join our team? Well, the the, the first one actually came prior around the time of the California State Championship. So Montessa, Montessa, Javier Jordi, and, uh, had, who was the distributor at the time in L.A., had, or the Western distributor, he, he had approached us at an event and um, was offering a motorcycle at cost. And they, Montessa now had a, Small, small hub version. It was the first year when they went from the big hub model to the little. And there, of course, there were other changes, but I always judge it by the hub size. It was so obvious. Um, and anybody from that era knew them as the big hub Coda, or or the it, when it changed to the small. So anyway, uh, that was the first break. And then in 1975, when Honda started its program, that's when uh, all, and Montez also, incidentally, was helping a little bit with with gas and and various things for the events. When Honda came along in 75, so so let's see, I was a a junior in high school. That was the first full full bike ride, uh, you know, way paid and uh, actually uh, some money as well. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Who, who actually recruited you for Honda? Who was, the, who was the main guy at Honda that was putting together trials? Well, at the highest level, who made uh, big decisions was a guy by the name of John Blum. And he was also the motocross team as well was directed by him. 
the next level at that time Bob Nicholson and George Smith were the two um, laboratory rats for the Honda program so Bob was a mechanic and George was the writer by then I mean not that Bob didn't do testing and such but he wasn't he wasn't um, a competitor per se he was he was more about helping to develop the bike, and um, and I was I was approached, and I can't tell you if it was John or Bob, but I went to L.A. Uh, I remember and negotiated with John on the deal, and um, then Bob was my basically my go-to guy. Uh, for anything related to uh, actual competition and such. In other words, that was the end of John's um, dealings. In fact, he changed positions and went to another company shortly thereafter. So from then on, it was Nicholson. Well, let's let's talk about that deal because, you know, uh, people in trials today are always hearing, you know, well, back in the 70s when the Japanese got into it, I mean, what kind of deal did you have? They, they gave you a salary, a bike? expenses? What, yeah, what was well, the, if you could detail there, that for us, we, we might get an understanding. Well, it was really the biggest part, to be honest with you, was the support. It was the bikes. Um, it was the mechanics. It was having, especially when we went to Europe in 77, it was having all of the arrangements made uh, the travel, everything was laid out. It was an, a pretty extensive effort as far as that goes. Um, when you're talking about the motorcycle itself at the time, that part is somewhat overstated. Um, I think anybody that's honest, and and although, again, I, I emphasize the fact that they got it right eventually, but a four-stroke had not been pioneered in the sport um, to this level. In other words, uh, they started, of course, in England with those, you know, big, heavy four-strokes, but to get a, a, a four-stroke now after the introduction and success of the two strokes later you know that came later uh that was quite an endeavor they were notoriously heavy um and and ours were no different i remember that first tl 250 uh it weighed in at every bit of 235 pounds and and possibly even a little more uh it was uh, we were, when we started with that bike, we were definitely at a huge disadvantage compared to the two strokes that were out at the time, the Osas and the, you know, the Mick Andrews replica and the, you know, the Botacos, Sherpatees and, uh, you know, it, it, we were, and the Montessa, of course, we were way behind. But shortly thereafter, and they had promised that we had, uh, much, much improved motorcycles coming, and they were. They weren't perfect. They had a couple funky little quirks, but they did tear the weight down to, I believe, in the final, the final short stroke versions, they got them down to about uh, low 190s, if uh, I'm not mistaken. 
the uh, titanium parts and uh, just, uh, you know. A lot of put, magnesium on that bike. A lot of magnesium and, and uh, you know, titanium nuts and bolts, titanium axles. Uh, you know, put it on a definite diet and slimmed it down uh, and made it, made it a bike that you could compete on. It had a couple of hiccups uh, that made it uh, really tough at times um, when it got really hot. The biggest one was when it got really, really hot, it would, the gas would percolate and it would sputter. You'd, I mean, and it was, it was, it was intermittent. You would ride from section to section, it would get hot. You would park it, not much heat dissipation. You would kick it over, get going in the section, and you'd hit the gas, and it and it would still be running, but it would do this hesitation, and then it would go again. And we tried various asbestos heat shields between the motor and the carburetor, did various things um, to try to uh, circumvent the problem, um, it went on for quite a while. It, it was not totally resolved um, to the point where, when I ended, when it got really hot, and especially when you were riding in Europe where it was just incredible mud, and you had the throttles pinned just to get out of some of these, just going from two tons of water and slime. It would get so hot, and then it, that's when it would be on its worst behavior. And, and sometimes it was bad enough when you rolled on the throttle, it'd be lights out. It would shut off. And so, it, again, we didn't, and from the motorcycle aspect, from the equipment aspect, we did not have this folklore, um, as folklore would have it, that we had these super bikes. They were better than any four-stroke by far, better than the two-strokes. I don't think anybody honestly would argue that that was true. Yeah, but the support, the support was was incredible. The support was uh, phenomenal, and that's what made everybody um, remain committed because you could see at all times they were working on it. They were putting effort into it, yeah. They were putting effort into changing it. And so, you know, in loyalty, they were loyal, and, you know, you felt an obligation to be loyal to them, that if we could work this out and get it perfected. Um, and, and the thing was, obviously, we had success on them. So it wasn't like yeah. they were exactly. not... Not, I'm not saying they were inferior. They had a couple of funky quirks. That, it's just that I think the whole, it all came behind a package that everybody thought it was super bike, super everything. You just showed up and rode, and you know this miracle happened. And that's really not the case. It was a lot of work. We did a lot of time training. Um, it was the first professional effort in this country where people actually. You know, we worked together, rode together uh, when we were on the road. We were all from different places, more or less. But when we were on the road, you know, it was a concerted effort to, to uh, you know, work as a team. And uh, it worked well.
Yeah, Bob Bob Nicholson tells the story of carrying uh, gallons of water in his backpack. And while you were walking sections, he'd be dousing your bike with water trying to cool it off. <laughs> that's, the, that's what I'm talking about right there. <laughs> yeah, now, who the, does that? Yeah, who, who does that? Who does that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I noticed so, in 75 you were the champion on that Honda. And yes. Were, were you on the, the, the factory Honda at that point, or were you just on a TL250? I was on a long-stroke factory bike by then. Okay, but but still, you're at a disadvantage. So your riding had to be levels above anybody else's. Because I see here Don Sweet got second, Mike Mark Egger third, and Lane Levitt fourth. So to win that, that series, you had to have pretty good success on that bike. Yeah, no question about it. It, it was... Um Again, I don't want to. I don't want to um, make it sound like it was. Uh, uh, no, it, it, the, the stock TL two fifties that they sold. Yeah, there's no way I could have competed at that level. This bike was quite good. Needed some work. Again, yeah. it was. It was a good effort. It did work. Under certain circumstances, it worked very, very well. And. Uh, um, proved itself it was it was very reliable in in many aspects other than that one small thing i mean i don't remember anything other than that that was somewhat annoying at times <laughs> well, well what's what's great is you think about it they they you you come on to honda and the only offering they had was a tl250 which said was was overweight underpowered everything but then they're yeah. telling you you're going to get this factory bike. Describe when yeah. it actually showed up. I mean, what level of excitement was there when those things actually oh. showed up in the U.S.? Well, you know what's funny is I it, – it, the, the level of excitement was huge. And the reason being is we honestly had no pictures, no nothing. I mean, it was potluck. When it comes, that's what you got. And so – I, it was a little bit later than what John had promised, and um, maybe he was being overly optimistic on when it would come. And, and I think he was. There, there were some holdups, and it came. And i got to say, yes, riding the stock one, I was starting to go, you know what, I can't do this. I mean, because what's the point? I'll never win on this at the highest level it's too heavy like you said underpowered it's wide i i i just i remember riding it through some bad rock sections and just hanging up on stuff constantly it kind of led me around it was somewhat heavy um and so it was i just felt like i can't win on this so what's the point it's not going to do them any good either and um and it got delayed a couple of times, but when we saw it, wow, it was, we were blown away because we expected a much more refined version of what we had. It was completely shake the etch-a-sketch, start with something blank, and it was a complete do-over in every single aspect. I mean, it was quite an undertaking because... It was a motor that was entirely different. Nothing was borrowed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not a thing was a, was borrowed. 
and so it was a big big effort on the on the factory's part uh working with the what who was at the time the Japanese champion was giving them input um I believe it was uh, Hiroshi Kondo was doing the the work as best he could from that end and and uh, wow we wrote it and went huh, there you go now we got something that you know we can uh, we can work with well today Honda's in Torrance but I guess back then they were they were more in uh, they were Gardena. further from in Gardena yeah yeah they were they were uh, on Alondra Avenue in Gardena took up a huge Huge area. So when the bike came in, did you go that day to see it, or did you have to wait? Boy, I don't remember. I don't know why I think this, but I I thought Bob might have brought him down um, because three of us lived in San Diego. Okay. And so it was Mark Ager, George Smith, and myself were all from San Diego, and the only one out was Joe Guglielmelli, who lived in Walla Walla, Washington. So, so I, I, I don't know why, and I could be wrong. Um, but I remember, I, the only thing I do remember was being elated, going, okay, here, now we're talking. And so it was an issue of getting used to it, and uh, being able to, being able to. Uh, you know, just become familiar with it quick enough to get up to speed and go. Because I want to say we were already getting, we were at the beginning of the season. So it was kind of, uh, you know, a metamorphosis of um, preparation, getting ready and getting used to it quick. So they, they hire you, you get the bikes at the last minute, you're able to at least practice some on it, but then you go out, and how... The first event, how did you do? I mean, what what, what was the outcome? You know, it was good. I want to say, and again, you're, you're really, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we're in 1975 here, and so now that I'm pushing 60, uh, I'm sitting there going, oh, I was a ways back. Um, uh, what was I, 17 at the time? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, something. Anyway, uh, I, I want to say we went to Northern California. Murderer's Gulch was the name of the place, I think. And uh, and I think it went fairly well. I, I didn't win, but I think it went fairly well. And I don't know why I want to say this, too, and I thought Mark Ager had a pretty good day that day. Um. Uh, and again, I, I don't know why certain things stick in my mind, but I do remember that, that it, that, uh, he had had some early success on it and did well. And I remember just a beautiful, hot, sunny day and up in Northern California. Of course, we went to Lane, Lane Levitt's backyard there, and I, it wouldn't surprise me if he was the one that had won. Well, that was... I just... Yeah, so 75, you have you have good performance on it. You end up winning the championship. That had to be big for Hunt, to come into the U.S., form a team, and win the first year thereafter. Yeah, I thought so. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I thought, well, that was the point. You know, that was the goal. 
and uh, basically, you know, it was we were we were in a lot of ways because they already had a huge successful motocross program that we were overshadowed by by a long shot, and a lot of it I have to say is we were about two different things: one, developing a four-stroke that. Honda really wanted to move towards the short stroke design, wanted to make a, 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 a more compact four stroke motor, which led to what you see today. That was one objective. The other one was Honda recognized, like so many do, and even today to the nth degree with Facebook um, and social media, getting success in any area as far as they were concerned if you could get that Honda name out there and put it out front of the competition as many times as you can it sells more cars it sells more generators it sells more everything if you if Honda becomes a household name uh, it's a good thing and so we were we were about about the name um, and about that development of that particular motor. And there, of course, with motocross program, four strokes were not even considered. The two strokes, the Elsinores, were what were going at the time, and there, there just was no four stroke. They had already had their day in, uh, you know, early, early days. And just like trials, they went full circle. You know, now today, four strokes are back yeah. and uh, and competitive again. So, so you know, we laid the groundwork for that in many ways. Uh, you had to start somewhere, and even though they seem like unrelated sports, it still starts that ball rolling, and through that, they did shorten up the strokes on them, and they did lighten them up, and they found ways, and they found but many ways finding success is finding out what doesn't work because you know you start crossing stuff off the list so let's let's talk a little bit about development of bikes so in 75 you get this totally custom made bike in there so when they went to short stroke they didn't replace the whole bike did they or did they just replace the engine pretty much only the engine and we went from metal metal tanks that were kind of a uh, like an aluminum teardrop type um, construction. To we went to a super thin flexible fiberglass um, to lighten it up again some more, and it was very flexible and thin. Uh, and the motor, and beyond that, I I don't remember anything being all that much different as far as I think everybody was very satisfied with the frames and how they handled. And suspension, I guess, in the day. The, the, shot, the rear shocks, we ran different different ones. Um, I, I, had, I was running something a little different than what it came. I think it came with the Shellas. And uh, I want to say there was a time I was running some girlings. Uh, um... I believe I'm not. I'm trying to make sure I'm not getting that confused with when I went back with Montessa. But I thought that I was running something a little different um, on the rear. 
But no, to answer your question, basically it was a motor change. And when did the short stroke motor show up? Which year was that? Do you remember? Okay. Aye, aye, aye. So you won in 75, and 76, and 77. I assume that was all on Hondas. Correct. Um, I want to, those were the years that I won on the Honda. Um, wow. I want to say, I want to say, okay, I know, well, here's what I do know, what I can say assuredly. When we went back to Europe in 77, Bob Nicholson and I and we, and Hiroshi Kondo ran some championship series events in Europe. We did Finland, Sweden, Switzerland, uh, somewhere else. I can't remember where all. But uh, at any rate, Rob Shepard, who was riding in Europe with Sammy Miller on the Honda program, they didn't like the short stroke motor at first. So they were running the long stroke, and that created a little bit of controversy within the company, I think Honda really wanted this short stroke to work. And Rob Shepard was getting great results with the long stroke. And so, again, it's, you can, we can argue about things all day long, but when somebody's getting a good result with it, um, you know, pretty tough to, to say he's wrong. But we came over there with the short stroke motor, so I know very well that we had the short stroke by 77, but I got to think more like 76. Sometime in 76, we actually had uh, made the initial change. Okay. So so you did go over and run, ride some world championships over in Europe. Yeah. And, and what yeah. was your results there? I uh, had some some good and bad. I had uh, in Switzerland. I got fourth overall. In in Finland, I was actually running even better on the last the last one. Uh, was going. It was a day beyond belief. It just uh, everything was clicking right. Uh, the short stroke was on its worst behavior. Um, I had sections where it was just popping and missing horribly. The conditions got, it got worse when there was a lot of mud, a lot of slime, like I said, motors getting hot, pinned a lot at high RPM. And then, of course, once the fins started caking up with mud, too, that would make it run hotter yet. And so this all multiplied. It, I remember that was that was the day of days uh, in my mind that just you know I was beating Rob Shepard in Europe. It was going great, and then and, and I still ended up okay for the day. I mean, considering I had to take some fives on some sections, was cleaning some ones that people were having troubles with, couldn't get, you know, were paddling their way through. And uh, then had the thing die at the end, just uh, literally cough up, and it had a, it would wheeze, and then boom, and out she'd go. <laughs> and so it all felt, that was the last of this, or well, that was the second last, and then there was some redemption, I think, in, it was Switzerland was the next one. 
the, the next week and got a fourth, which under the conditions was good for, for me um, because I hated to be rained on all day and slimy mud, which is kind of the European way, just slippery snot. And coming from Southern California and used to riding in two inches and four inches of dust all the time, it's a completely different game, you know. And where Spain, I thought, was great. I loved riding in Spain because it was dry and it was what I was used to. And, uh, you know, kind of a snowflake when when it rained. I felt like I was just dissolved because I, you know, i not just not accustomed to it. You know, slimy gloves, slimy everything, you know, uh, just being rained on all day, got old, and just didn't deal with it real well, mainly because uh, I didn't come from an area where that's what you did. So, anyway. So, did did uh, you enjoy the experience over in Europe? Were you okay with the travel and the strange food and everything else you had to deal with? Yes and no. With Honda, yes, I was, again, this was the advantage with Honda, where Europe didn't go ever as well as what I had hoped with Montessa when I went back. Is The difference was I had transportation to be able, I had mobility, you know, we had vehicles, Bob, Bob and I and Hiroshi, and we had a guy, gentleman from England that was driving a second vehicle. I could get out a lot. I could ride. I could go to different areas. In fact, we rode up. We spent a lot of time based out of where McAndrews is from in, in uh, Derbyshire. And we, we rode. In other words, I was in my routine that I was accustomed to at home. When I, when I got to Spain, I did a lot of sitting and sitting and more sitting and sitting to the point of going stale that I, I went crazy. I loved being in Spain and I, you know, it suited my, my Southern California, uh, lifestyle and mentality. It felt good to be warm. It was good for me, <laughs> but, but, uh, I just, there was nowhere, nowhere to ride. I just kind of, because at the factories right in Barcelona there, where it's busy, I didn't have transportation. Um, we just did a lot of sitting. And we're, with Honda, we were going out daily, and uh, the program was very supportive. And uh, we ate well, and we slept well. <laughs> and uh, it just just feeling more accustomed Um to what I was used to. Yeah, yeah. Was, how much of that was how much of that was Honda and how much of that was Bob Nicholson just making sure that everything was just right? Oh, it, it absolutely was Bob. Uh, representing Honda. He he was doing what he came to do. And uh, he did a good job of it. We he, you know, he, he watched over the bikes and um, and also just made sure that things went smoothly. And uh, if it weren't for that, uh, I, I clearly would not have had the, the same success, for sure. And, and that was seen and evidenced when I went back um, without the support 
I felt like a fish out of water, and all that I did, I uh, was, it just it was hard trying to um, just to travel and you know catching ferries and doing this and doing that and you know trying to stay practiced and again in an environment I just I don't know I didn't I didn't adapt well on my own that's for sure when I just kind of felt like I was out there. Well, um, when you were in Europe, you also rode the Scottish that year, right? Yes. So that was all one trip where you did all these world events, you did the Scottish, and somehow you won the national championship here. I'm not sure how many rounds there were back then. But when you were in Europe, you also rode the Scottish that year, right? Yes. So that was all one trip where you did all these world events, you did the Scottish, and somehow you won the national championship here. I'm not sure how many rounds there were back then, but um, there were quite a few actually. I gotta think. That sounds crazy. That sounds like a lot of, a lot of shuffling around and moving around. What? That's what I mean. It, there was eight or nine in America alone. Oh my gosh. And so, but I will say that uh, again. What was so important and so vital to that was the support. That's where that's where Honda shined. They they made that part easy, and of course they were very well practiced at it because the motocross team, where they had you know a mechanic for every rider, and they had I don't know they had the, you know when you looked at that when we go for team photos and stuff. My gosh, there was a dozen motocross riders, you know, and so they were used to running big efforts and could do it well. And of course, that takes money, and a lot of the other companies just couldn't throw that much money at it, for sure. And but they did a good job of it. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it it was. It was a lot of travel and a lot of coordination, and that's why I say when I when I had to resign myself to doing it. Um, you know, pretty much making all all the travel arrangements and things yourself, it can be tough. And especially when you're, you know, I could do better now that I'm older. But when you're 20 and it just, it just seemed like a lot happening all at once and trying to keep track of it all was, uh, I don't know, it, it, it turned out to be very difficult. And what's your memories of the Scottish? Is that something that's an uh, event that you that was? Uh... Oh, <laughs> first of all, it's kind of like um, at that time it was the premier. If you aspire to do anything, and 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 mainly, I got to tell you, Brad, because of the history. My dad's old English magazines, fifties. From the fifties, from the fifties and sixties, here's these classic uh, sections: log and locks, pipeline. These are things that I saw in Max King's book. Looked at these pictures. I mean, thousands of times. Um, soft guys climbing them. You know, Sammy Miller on an old aerial, and. You know, people on Triumph Cubs and all these old, old bikes, and uh, and yet the event never changed. In other words, even though you could go through the European things and it all had moved to a whole new level, this this was classic.
this was something that was, uh, this is your bucket list event that you had to be part of. Um, and, and, it, and it was, albeit, albeit not as difficult as what the European uh, Championship events had become, just riding for six days, covering a lot of miles, again, uh, I can count how many sunny days I've seen in Scotland on one hand after doing <laughs> three, three Scottish six days at least that I know of, um, and just being continually pissing rain all day, every day, cold, get back to the hotel, all the hot water's been used. You know, we take a lot for granted in this great country of ours. And, you know, here's a hotel in, uh, in Fort William, and, and if you had a late number that day because they rotate the numbers, the starting orders, and you, you missed out on the shower, you're laying in about two inches of cold water trying to get clean, get all the mud off. And so um, still unforgettable experience, wouldn't trade it. It, it was really cool. Again, not because it was more difficult, but to finally see when that day came after anticipation and looking at these pictures forever and seeing these sections in person and going, wow. And then finding out you could, you know, you could do them, you know. And riding the moors, that had to be an experience. Oh, uh, yeah. I buried, I buried a couple bikes up to the up to the handlebars in water and had to get some help to get them out. Uh, unbelievable. <laughs> well, you'd hit those bogs, and, and they weren't kidding. You would bury that bike completely. I had to take, uh, it was either the one, I can't remember which bike, the Montessa or the Montessa, Honda or the Montessa, excuse me. And I remember having to turn it upside down after I got it out, pull the spark plug, and pump all the water out of the barrel. It was filled with water. It had sat that much. It took that long to get the bike out. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. I learned after a while what those bogs looked like. If, as much as you could tell, sometimes you just didn't know, and the next thing you were over the bars and up to the bikes just standing there and, uh, you know, buried. But uh, there were other people buried in some of these areas, and we would help each other get our bikes pulled out because you weren't going to start them, obviously, and uh, you had to get that water out just to get them started. But they'd start back up, sometimes make the funny sounds, and um, off you'd go again. But, yeah, it was it was quite the, uh, quite the experience. I, I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, you, you uh, can hear it in your you can hear it in your voice, and you've done a lot of stuff in your life. You've done many many epic things, but Scottish still stands out as one of your. Yeah. Yeah. And and she still goes today, still standing. You know what I mean? It's Absolutely. Standing the test of time as as that uh, Olympic or World Series or whatever Super Bowl. Um, it's just like I compare it to, like, in mountain bike racing that I'm into, Leadville. Leadville's by no means the most difficult race, but it attracts the best riders from every aspect of the sport and at high altitude, and it is difficult, don't get me wrong, but there are harder ones 
but it's Leadville. It's oh, the the air is electric when you're there. It's the best of the best. The who's who. All these people converge on this small town at you know at ten thousand over ten thousand feet in Colorado. It's the same thing you go to to the Scottish Six Days, and it's the color. It's the just the international uh, feeling. It's crazy, and uh, it was really neat to be a part of something like that. Yeah. Well, yep, let's, it was let's shift gears a little bit here and come back to the United States, to where you're you're back in the national championship. So 1977 was that your last year with Honda? Yes, it was. And and you you won the championship over Bernie Schreiber at that time. He had been coming up. He was probably seen as one of the younger guys coming up. Uh, he's 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 about your age though, right? Maybe a year older. No. Bernie, I rode with Bernie all the way from the beginning. Okay. So here yeah, you guys no. are in 77 doing battle. Was that one of the more memorable championships? Or who was your who was your biggest competition or the person that you just thought at any minute could knock yeah. you off? The first, the first go around, for sure, at a national level was Don Sweet that first year in 75. Yep. Uh, and he was a guy I didn't know a whole lot about because he was from New York. Nice guy, enjoyed competing with him. Um, was a, he was eventually ended up with, you know what, he was already on the Yamaha team, I take it back. In 75, he was riding the Yamaha. And uh, he, he was the toughest then. Uh, Bernie and I battled it out on the Southern California scene all the way going up through the ranks. That was an ongoing, that was another story in itself. We, we as, as we both got better, um, we flip-flopped that a lot. And uh, so then in, you know, 76 also got down to... Uh, now that I again, this is all coming back to me, and I was on the short stroke at the time. I'd be willing to. In fact, I know I was. But then it got down to Don Sweet again. I remember whoever won on the last event was going to be the winner. It didn't matter if we were fifth and sixth or ninth and tenth. Whoever beat who was going to win. It was that close. And I remember. I remember uh, having a pretty sleepless night before that event, and it was back east, and I can't remember. I don't know why. I don't know. It was ah, Pennsylvania, New York, somewhere like that. Um, I don't recall, but I do remember just uh, really sweating that one because it was that close. And then, and then in 77, I won all the nationals. Uh, everyone that year, I do remember that much, and I think I had something like 13, 12 or 13 straight because counting the ones from 76, like the last three, I think I won. Uh, and then won, I don't know, eight or nine more the next year. But I remember putting together 77 is the year that sticks in my mind as the one that was the most memorable year. And uh, so, and then I don't, I don't recall, though, 
who was second in 77, to be honest that with was, you. That was Bernie, and then third was Don Sweet. Okay, so so Sweet was still there. In, yeah. Yeah, see, and so he, he turned out to be a, um, a real formidable opponent and lasted, you know, quite a while. was very consistent, um, obviously. He should get the consistency award. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay, second, second, and third. Um, that's that's pretty good. So so yeah, it uh, you know then of, of course as as Bernie came up through the ranks, he you know he turned the page where he started to really come on strong during that period of time as well. And then of course you know seventy eight seventy nine really hit his stride. Yeah, so in in uh in seventy eight Bernie Bernie wins. In seventy nine you come back and, and take it over Bernie. Was Bernie at that point starting to go over to Europe? Yes, correct. Okay, so um let's talk about now. So in seventy seven you're you're the you're the national champion. You're on team Honda and for some reason you leave Honda and walk away. What happened? What happened was I was approached by Montessa. I had um, the low-score day at the Scottish Six-Day Trials, okay? Uh, I think I had two points for the day. Uh, this was, I can't remember, fourth day or something like that. Anyway, so Alberto Mayofre from Montessa comes and talks to me. And the only reason that I entertained it was Honda had no, I was happy with Honda, but they clearly expressed that, they, excuse me, that they had no interest in continuing to send uh, myself or Americans on a regular basis back to Europe. In other words, they felt like they would be better, better uh, suited to try to start a European, they already had Rob Shepard who was doing well and if they were going to pick up somebody else, pick up somebody in Europe and really wanted to keep the fire burning in the United States, that was a big market for them, so it was do your best in America forget Europe, we'll cover that with something else, basically and logistically it makes sense I mean it's way easier just to have somebody over there find somebody good that, you know uh, can do it locally, and, and uh, I get that. And Montessa actually, at that time, I wanted to continue, had had, had what I felt was a, you know, uh, a decent year in, in, uh, in Europe and wanted to continue on. And Montessa was willing to give me that chance. And so... He asked me if I would fly to back to Spain right after the Scottish Six Day. And so he arranged a ticket for me to go back to Barcelona. And we talked, and we negotiated a deal to uh, ride the following uh, couple years. I can't remember how long the deal was, but to do the United States and do a certain amount of European events. And so that was the start of that. And uh, 
78 was not, in general, in life, a lot of things went wrong. Um, and that's why you didn't see a great result in 78. Um, I had run a saw through my thigh. I had um, uh, just a ton of things. It was, <laughs> I could go on and on. It was the year from hell. Uh, wrecked a really nice car. Uh, had a crazy girlfriend. It was insane. I mean, it, it all, it, it was, I'm, I'm glad it all got done in one year so I could move on. But uh, I had a lot of diversions. And admittedly, this was the part where when I was younger, uh, I, I think now, I honestly think today I could in many ways apply a much better program and do fairly well just because of what I've learned. I was too much into still having fun, still uh, a side of me wanted to go live a normal life too, where you experimented with all kinds of things when you were younger and hoop it up and uh, where you, you lack a little bit of the discipline that it takes. Uh, you know, whereas you become older and, I don't know, it's kind of been there, done that, and it's pretty easy to apply that same, that, that discipline that it takes, I should say. So, um, yeah, I got it out in one year, and, <laughs> oh, it was awful. It was just a year unbelievable. It was just a like, it was almost funny if I wasn't living it. So you get and, that out of your system in 78, but then you come back in 79 and recapture the championship. Correct. It was, it was that or get fired. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it, it, was, it, it was just, yeah, it, it, I got my head back on, put all that crap behind me, and, and I wasn't happy with the way all the... You know, it's like, okay, that didn't work. You need to go back to, you know, what you know. And uh, so I had a chance to regroup and and come back in, in 79 and 80. Yeah, you won back-to-back there. So from 75 to 80, you're riding just trials. Were you making a living? Did they pay you enough that you could just do trials and not have to work at other jobs, or did you just work other jobs anyway? No, I, I actually did not have uh, an, another job. I I actually had pretty much just, I had saved everything that I had ever earned pretty much and bought a house. I had uh, three friends move in, a four-bedroom house, and rent from me for more than my house payment, so that was covered. Um, so basically I was just living off of what I had, you know, I was a saver, always have been, and so I, I made it uh, on what I had put away. So you were able to just be a trials rider for all those years? Uh, yeah, for those two years I did. And I, and I was getting an income, uh, albeit not a lot, but I was getting, I was getting uh, some money. 
And then I also had various sponsors where I had contingencies, um, where I, you know, for winning, like a first, second, third type thing. Um, Delray Oil, uh, Nobby Shop International, who was the rental uh, handlebar uh, distributor. Um, Nip and Denso spark plugs, Dunlop tires, I remember. <laughs> there were contingencies for wins. Some of them were first place only. Some of them were nationals only. Some were local and national, different amounts and such. So, so anyway, it, it, there was, excuse me, there was some um, in addition, you know, without having to go, you know, uh, work outside. Yeah. So then in, in 81, it looks like you fall all the way back to six. Did you finish this, the series then or just to compete in a few? Okay, so that year I'm done with Montessa and I ride, I ride one event or two. I think it was a weekend in Oregon and Washington on a Boltaco 350. It was one of the first 350s. Um, John Grace had approached me, uh, and I, 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 you know, and here's, I remember there were some issues with the bike, but he said that they were working on some things, and, oh, no, no, no. I remember, again, sorry, bike was fine. The problem was the bike was so new, and it was a redesign, there were no parts for this bike yet. They got the bike, but there were no parts. And it became a problem as I did things for it. And it was a short, but I mean, I rode that bike for a very short period of time, went and competed on it. I had some issues with some, some things that were at broke, had no replacements for it, and it kind of just felt like this just isn't going to work out. Um, a lot of it should be coming any day, and and it wasn't his fault. It just, I know if he had it and he could have fixed it, he would have. He just didn't have the stuff, and, and I just thought, what do I have to to gain at this point? I have everything to lose and nothing to gain. And and so I only rode two events that year. That's it. I rode, I want to say Washington, I want to say it was in Oregon and Washington, or I remember it was somewhere north of California. Yeah, that's the year Kurt Comer Jr. won. The yeah, right. So I, I just did that. And I remember Scott Head won from Southern California. I think he won. One, one or both of the events that I did that that uh, that weekend. I want to say I did two events in one weekend or something like that. I don't yeah. I don't remember Diamond Bar or something. I had something in Oregon. I'm sure one was in Oregon, and that uh, that was it. That was really a boom boom and done. Yeah, well that's that's what's evident here. Your name never shows up again in any of the results. In 81, you walked away from trials, which was part of your life for 
probably a good almost decade, and you just yep. walked away from trials. Have you have you ridden trials? Well, I know you have, but what were the reasons for walking away? Were you just like you just said? I I was just done. Um. You know, I, I want to say a little bit, I could see that there was nothing for me except in this country. And although I liked it, I was at a point in my life where I felt like I need to get decide what I'm going to do. So, so having come off of that, and unlike the motocross guys where they were just making phenomenal amounts of money and they could live off of what they had, and, and many have, and, you know, uh, invested it and were on their way. Uh, and, and I had, had done that as well with what I had, but they were just so over the top. You know, guys like Marty Smith and that were, you know, national motocross champions. So... So I was standing at a crossroads going, okay, you know, now I'm 23. I need to figure out what I'm going to do in life. And it's gotten, you know, life is getting serious, and I probably ought to make a plan. And um, just decided that I probably need to do it. And there's a little bit more to that, I might add also, is that I thought, you know, rather than just continue on and continue on, you can only keep that fire aflame. Why not, you know, so long, why not, why not uh, quit while you basically, I mean, the two events in a season, that, that to me didn't qualify as like a major like failure on a whole new bike. In other words, I thought, why not be remembered for what you did? Not not for this guy that hangs on forever as you just go down, 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 down. You know what I mean? Yep. I thought this, I this would be a good time to still uh, maintain some integrity <laughs> and and move on to, to uh, a career of some sort that, uh, you know, that's sustainable and would be something you would be interested in doing and... Um, yeah, I don't know. And leave with, leave with a great memory rather than trudge on and on forever and, and maybe just, uh, you know, very slowly fade, um, back further and further and further. Well, believe me, you're remembered by most, by everybody I've ever talked to is one of the, uh, greatest champions in the sport. So, you know, having five national championships, I don't think you could leave on a, on a bad note. Well, thank you. And it makes me smile every time I I think about it. It was that Martin Belair and I, uh, you know, I still talk to Martin and I have our once a year call or once every other year call, and we still, we rather than pretty much what what we're doing now and where we're going, we go back to what what trials once was and how what a great experience it was and how much fun and. And I always come back to the same thing that it doesn't matter about the money. And it, I, I still have a memory right now that is so good and makes me smile and laugh sometimes of just uh, some fun times on the road. Uh, we really had a blast. 
and uh, wouldn't trade it for anything and, and really en- enjoyed the sport. Although, you know, now I look at it and, and uh, you know, like so many, it's like, wow, it's changed. <laughs> and um, it truly has. But, but as has every sport. In other words, the level uh, of everything as, as people learn more. The, the, the technology gets better. The equipment gets better. The knowledge of how to train gets better. Everything keeps moving. And you have, you, you know, and a lot of people want to compare it, the new with the old, and it's like you can't. And furthermore, it's not fair to. It's just like people in all sports are getting faster, and the knowledge has taken it all to a whole new level. And, um, you know, we didn't know how far the envelope could be pushed. And, of course, now you just see the, the most incredible things, and I look at stuff and go, wow. You know, and, and you, you know, and, again, you couldn't do it on the equipment we had either. You can't sit there and, and bounce on the top of a tree stump or a boulder and, uh, you know, flick it, uh, you know, so quickly onto the next rock and and such, but it didn't even cross our mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but what, it, what's happened is that you know it's like every sport. One champion passes on everything he learned and the envelope he pushed onto the next champion who absolutely. does the same and does the same. So you've had you were one of the contributors to a eight-time national champion Pat Smaji today. Yeah, it, it, you, yeah, everybody's wrong on the ladder for yeah. sure. Yeah, I, I totally, I, I totally agree. Uh, there were things I was taught um, that he may not even know, but like Lane Levitt, I, I, I watched him a lot. I was pushed by him in the very beginning. He would be the first one that I, I really uh, um, had learned a lot and and kind of thought he had taken it to a, a different level, and then as time went on uh, and as he progressed, then Bernie started doing things that were pushing it a little more. Um, and so, yeah, everybody has something. Everybody has something to add. We were, in the case of Schreiber and I, we were two completely different riders, completely so diametrically opposed as far as how we did things, um, and yet the result, you know, was was very close to the same. Him and I were so different, you know. Every everything I, I'm a planned person. Every nothing, um, you know. I don't do anything off the cuff. I I I, I I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I draw charts, I draw a plan, a floor plan, everything I do, and, 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 and it hurt me. It hurts me to a big degree because when things change, sometimes I find myself not being spontaneous enough. And I think on it, I chew on it. You know, the difference in, of the era that I wrote in, I was like Malcolm Rathmel and he was Martin Lampkin. <laughs> you know, Port Lampkin wouldn't look at a second, look at a, walk through a section real quick and get out and get on his bike and go and wing it. And he'd be by the seat of his pants, half hanging off, looking like he wasn't going to make it and would clean it. Bernie was the same way. 
uh, choppier, uh, just working on instinct, but yet would pull it off. I would look at it, go get back on my bike, see somebody bobbling something that I questioned, get back off my bike, go back, look at it again, chew on it, sometimes spending ridiculous amounts of time in sections to make sure that I had it right. Malcolm Rathmel was the same way. And him and Mark Lampton were best friends, and yet it, he said it drove him nuts because he just, he said, I get nervous sitting there looking at it for so long. <laughs> and uh, and so it's, it's a huge contrast. But he was also, uh, he, although he says that, he, he rolled with Europe way better than I ever did um, when he was on his own. He, he, just had a, he just had kind of a, an attitude. It seemed like he had just rolled with it and easy going and nonchalant. And, you know, I had plans and wanted to do this, and I needed to ride, and I needed to do this. And as the anticipation built and the anxiety of just sitting around so much, it just frustrated me, and I just uh, I, it didn't. You know, I didn't care about the food, and I didn't care about certain things, but I just felt like my whole plan was broken, you know, off balance. And, uh, you know, without that support of Honda, where some of this stuff, some of this at least was taken care of, and I did get out to ride a lot. And that made a huge, made all the difference in the world. And so, you know, you just start, then you're not happy because you're going, what am I doing here because if I'm, you know, if I can't practice, I'm not going to do well. And if I don't do well, well, what's the point? And, you know, what I'm saying, it just spirals. And, you know, he adapted a lot better. Um, you know, he flowed with it a lot better with this, this stuff. And, you know, it's still too, it still uh, haunts me a little bit in bike racing today, you know, when the weather turns to really crappy and you're out there for eight hours in the rain and snow. Um, that, that, affects me. Some people don't have a problem with it. They're used to it. For me, it's like, oh, no. And it can just, my performance can drop by 20% just because I can't stand the circumstances, and that's not a good thing. So I'm working on it, though. I force myself to go out into the worst more and more to adapt. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, there, there was a stark difference between us, you know, fast on how we approached it. So, actually, I wish I had more instincts. <laughs> more, ta- more talent and less brain. I worked off a of brain. He worked off of, you know, just raw talent. And I've never looked at myself at any of this as being gifted. It's just by determination that it works. <laughs> and that's all. Just being relentless. So you're just a relentless, determined five-time national champion. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I, you know what? Anybody that knows Seacoast knows that how true that is. That it's, uh, it, it's all by desire. Let's put it that way. All by desire to make it work right. Try to, you know, close doors that are, that are chinks in the armor one by one where others can just, they can nail it. And, not even think about it much. They just pick the right way, and that's just not me. It's just not the way I'm put together. So, so yeah, uh, it's it, it transferred in what I'm doing with the riding, too, it, it, with the bicycles, I should say. Same thing. I, I approach it the same way. Um, all the training, it's all charted. It's all 
you know, uploaded into a analytical thing uh, uh, site, and you know, it's it's gotten down to numbers, <laughs> just like everything else. So, <laughs> and it works. It's it's working here too. It's it's not my preferred way, but it is what it is. It's all I got, you know. So yeah. No, you don't just stumble on them for sure, you know, but it, it's talent now, not particularly. It's more of a, just a burning desire, so. Okay, Marlon. Um, you know, we're, we were talking about your, your time uh, in trials, and then, then you uh, felt it was time to, to walk away. So, so after you walked away, did you ride trials at all? Did you, did you just no. turn it off? Completely turned it off, not not one time. So to the point to the point even I had an enduro bike shortly, a Honda enduro bike. Oh gosh, for maybe two year year or two, around nineteen. Oh, let's see, it would have been uh, beginning of the eighties for a, maybe a two year window. And then got rid of it and haven't owned a motorcycle since. Not one. And, and I just have conversations with people out. When you called me the other day at the local bicycle shop that I ride out of, um, he asked me the very question. It was so funny that you called because he wanted to show me he'd gotten a new KTM 250 enduro bike. And he just goes, you don't even own a bike, do you? And I said, nope. And he says, well, how come? And, you know, do you not like them anymore? I said, oh, I love motorcycles, but the problem is, time-wise, I can only afford one hobby at a time, and I'm just not uh, not ready to give this one up um, at the moment. I said, I'll come back and ride motorcycles again someday. But honestly, I have not owned a motorcycle <laughs> since uh, 1980, early 80s. That's early 80s. That is incredible. 80, 82? Because I know there's people, friends of yours, that are still involved in the sport and everything. And, and there oh. has to have been some encouragement. Nobody tried to recruit you for a comeback in the early 80s, another brand or something? that. Um, no, I, you know, I, again, I tend to just close the book and when I'm done and, and I just did and went a different avenue and got married, had kids, um, didn't even own one and never never rode trials at all, um, just gone. And uh, the, old, the only time I've ever even hopped on one is Gosh, and this has been uh, seven years ago now. Last time I rode one was seven years ago when I rode with my dad. It's out in the hills behind his house. Uh, he's got an old Honda that he had gotten um, from Bob Nicholson eons ago when I was riding, and he still got him running. Uh, the one, their TL, there's a 125, and then there's one that's punched out to be a little bigger. And so we went, just went for a cruise around the hills um, and that was the last time I've been I have not been on a motorcycle of any kind since so yeah it is kind of strange I admit 
I get that question a lot. I get this perplexed look on their face, and uh, you don't even own one? You don't even? And I said, no, I, I don't, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you've gotten big into mountain biking, and uh, I think you're, how many championships have you won in mountain biking? I won the national championship in the ultra-endurance distance, which is the 100-mile distance off-road in 13 and then and then um that end of that year it was a great year and it was a horrible year um my oldest daughter was diagnosed with leukemia and that kind of sent me into a tailspin and put everything on hold um at 30 she had it which is unusual and um just hit some really low low times and uh, try to stay encouraged and go at it hard and uh, just uh, things things didn't go. I just wasn't into it at the time. I had more passing issues. And then have come back and, uh, and have been going at it hard again and actually riding actually considerably better than when I won the, the national championship. So... Um, I'm on my way to a race right now and off of the coast of Seattle and uh, got a hefty schedule in front of me for the next couple months um, for sure. So up here with the weather, winter being so long, when it's time to go, it's time to really go. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, you know, and, I, and I do like it. I don't have anything against it. It's for no other reason that I just, between business and um this at uh, the cycling there's just no room left um and i don't really want to sacrifice time with my wife for one more hobby and it works out well because she rides and competes as well and so yeah it works it works for now but i love motorcycles do you find yourself using some of your skills you developed in trials and in, in mountain biking oh. that would have to come in oh. handy oh yeah Absolutely, on, especially on the on the downhill and more technical courses, for sure, for sure. Uh, you know, it was uh, it was definitely an advantage to have some some handling skills, especially coming into it later. The sport already over well over fifty. Um, if you come in raw, typically you tend to be a little more pensive, but you're not willing to cut loose and. Of course, with uh, two-wheel experience in the past, uh, it, although the, it is different, it's also very similar. So, yeah, definitely helped, for sure. So then, uh, how did you end up making a living in life? I mean, give us a little little bit of I insight. Up, you know, <laughs> I ended up being a general building contractor, and... Uh, you know, and and very hands-on, doing a lot of the work. I thought, well, it would be better to to do the work itself and learn how would make you a better contractor than a paper, what we call a paper contractor, where they just went and got the license and they call people up for each individual thing. And, and uh, you know, so I did, did foundations, conc- uh, uh, framing, Siding, finish, um, electrical, 
uh, picked and chose the, the aspects that we wanted to do that I felt were worthwhile and stuffed out the rest. But uh, did uh, mostly um, custom homes, a lot of spec homes for resale, uh, and also um, a very limited amount of commercial work as well. We did, when I first got here to Montana um, in 80, uh, excuse me, 96, we did like 16 McDonald's restaurants, um, either remodeled or brand new stores. So we kind of got got in a niche and did that. And so now I'm trying to pick and choose and phase out a little bit. Although I've got work going, I really try to limit it more. I'm I'm trying to uh, trying to phase out of it and start taking life a little easier. So, <laughs> yeah, it seems like that that part of your life's coming up uh, pretty quickly, like the rest of us. I think we're all about the same age. It, it, it truly is, and uh, you know, I became because fifty is such a monumental number. When I became fifty, I real I, I really the flashing light was in my face, saying these things that you really enjoy doing or ever had any aspirations to do. You better start thinking about it quick um, because the handwriting's on the wall, even though you can do many things to slow it down. Nobody escapes. And, you know, you see people now doing incredible things at incredible ages, and it can be done for sure. Uh, but I, I really thought, you know what, I can't buy the time back ever. And with some regret, I worked like a madman in with the construction and missed some holidays, some birthdays, some things in a quest to try to, um, you know, move ahead and do what I thought was right. And some of it with regret, you know, nobody's emergency was ever an emergency. It was just that's what they wanted. So you were being pushed, and and uh, I would respond. And now I don't. I I've learned, and I do it more on my terms than than you know have it dictated to me, and more and more. So um, yeah, it, it's definitely. I'm very very aware of time right now, and I'm stingy with it. It's <laughs> it, it, it is. Uh, you know, I like the elk hunt, and which takes you know, trudging up and down mountains and the snow, and it, then when you get one, it's a nightmare, you know, and a lot of work to get one out, especially where we hunt, and things like that that demand a lot of physical effort. There's, I'm on a really limited um, itinerary here, so I, I try to make the most of what's, what's left, and the brain's still young, but no, I, I can tell some mornings, it's a little stiff from all the all the cycling and all the work. So uh, I'm trying to make the most of it now. But the handwriting is on the wall for sure. Okay, Marlon. Well, you know, we've talked all about your, your history with trials and, and kind of what you're doing now. And, um, you know, like always, we, we, we love our past champion. You were five-time national champion. And we've got one of your your bikes. The, in fact, it's the Honda Short Stroke that you talked about from 76, uh, 77. 
that we found at the AMA Museum in their basement. It was kind of hidden away. And we've taken that bike and, and just done a kind of cleanup on it and, um, you know, hope to get it downstairs in the in the uh, display. We know we'll get it downstairs in their, in their display, but upstairs is a Hall of Fame. And we know you've been uh, nominated for the Hall of Fame at the AMA, and, and we've got all our fingers crossed that you'll you'll get into that Hall of Fame. And when you do that, your bike gets moved upstairs. So just your thoughts about how this bike survived and that it still has your name on it and it, you know, is, is going to be on display at the AMA. <laughs> how it survived is beyond me. Um, uh, I was, many, many moons ago, I was told that the last I heard was that Bob Nicholson was able to save some bikes from the crusher and that a lot of older bikes that even though they had some history and stuff they basically for liability reasons and such they just they got smashed and um you know put away <laughs> and supposedly the story went that he had actually salvaged or saved a couple or one, I don't know, but um, I didn't know if it was just hearsay because I have also, you know, had a couple people said that they thought they had my old Montessas, too. Um, and, and I don't know if that's true or not. And so, so I discount a lot of it to uh, just you know, something for people to talk about. Not really sure how to validate. I didn't get excited about this one until we talked about the paint on the motor, and that was a dead giveaway. There's no question where this bike came from, uh, just because nobody else's short stroke Honda went to Scotland. So that makes it easy uh, that it's authentic. And so um, I think it's... Uh, I think it's exciting to find out that uh, it, it I, and actually, let me back up one quick second. Mark Belair actually uh, sent me a photo and did a little video, and I don't know if he got it from you or what. You could actually hear it running and showed me a photograph of it. And, uh, oh, this was maybe two months ago. And, uh, and I just thought that was so cool, you know. It's it's if I could see something like that in person, especially because I would be reminded of a lot of things, you know. Uh, when you see it, you go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And I forgot about that, and all the countless hours that you had on on uh, something like that, sort of like an old friend. Um, and that and that was a reliable old friend, you know. It did well, and um, yeah, a lot of great memories and took me to uh, some really good days, so I'm very thankful that it has been resurrected and uh, will be, and I think, honestly, when it came to that particular bike, or bikes, the Hondas in particular, they marked uh, they marked a time in history that a lot of bikes did not. Uh, there was nothing unusual about a lot of other ones, but this really was the start 
um, of the four-stroke uh, brigade that came after and kind of laid the, the foundation for the possibility that four-strokes could be competitive again when they had been written off and it was a two-stroke world for sure. So, yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm anxious to see where it all comes out. Well, if it, if it all comes together, there's going to be a lot of people that will see your old friend again. And yeah. you're right, how it survived is, is a story unto itself. I've heard some from Bob Nicholson. I've heard about it being smuggled into people's basements and stored away, trying to avoid the crusher. And, you know, at some point, he actually, from the story I've heard, received this bike as part of his retirement and promptly donated it to the, to the um, AMA which then stored it away and kind of forgot they had it until we, we drug it back out through some rumors that they had this bike, and I actually had to go to the basement of the AMA and look for it and found it. So, Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I heard similar stories. And so, and not knowing, uh, and I think Martin was the one who was filling me in on, on some of that. And I did, I did, uh, I did talk to Bob Nicholson last, wow, I don't know, um, maybe 12, 12 years ago was the last time that I actually talked to him, and I was wondering how he was enjoying uh, uh, where he lives in Prescott, Arizona, and we were talking about that, and I think the subject came up, and that uh, he had had that motorcycle, and and what he had done with it, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I've only gotten bits and pieces. It wasn't until Martin, it wasn't until Martin brought up the, the, the cases and the pain on the cases from the Scottish that I actually really, uh, Bob I trust, Bob knows all the bikes intimately, um, but uh, I, I just, it wasn't until he validated that, that one thing that I thought, eh, this is for real. So, because there were quite a few of them, you know, I think uh, every rider at some point had like two bikes. So, you know, that would be like eight bikes there, and and that was up the the one version, and then you had the short, the long stroke version that came first, and I think everybody had one of those. So, between them all, there was potentially a dozen of them running around. So to to say for sure whether it was yours or not, that became a, a, a tougher issue. Well, this one definitely has a Scottish paint on it. I, I've witnessed it myself and, and yeah. I was excited to see it. So. He sent me a photo. I've witnessed it myself, too. He actually <laughs> took a little picture of it uh, for me. So uh, I, that, I just laughed at that. I couldn't believe it. More so, I can't tell you hardly anything about the years or when I did stuff, but yet I can remember that paint on the casing. <laughs> on the casing, so don't ask me. <laughs> the way your brain works when you get old. Well, so. Definitely appreciate you spending so much time on the phone with us. It's, it's uh, awesome that you were driving somewhere and could actually spend this much time. Um, well, my pleasure, Brad, and I, I was glad to uh, to spend the time uh, taking. Uh, I, my brain needed this jarring to remember uh, some of this, and as we 
key areas where I uh, where we've lost perception. It got me starting to think about certain things and little facts and details and some things that I had forgotten along the way. And uh, yeah, it was a good reminder. Well, I always give people a chance in these interviews to thank people who who they've. Uh appreciate it over the years and and i know that's going to tax your brain again but is there anybody that you you specifically want to mention for your time as a champion well you know yeah it, it first of all it all started with my father and he he really you know it was the privateer scene it was a lot it was money travel you know, money to travel, I should say. It was bikes. He he worked on them. I was young. He had the mechanical knowledge um, and went out many countless hours and watched as I rode and, you know, gave me pointers and such for sure. And then, and then of course, when it, when it got to where it became professional, of course, I would have to say by far it was Bob Nicholson who who looked out after things and made sure things were taken care of. He was my first point of contact. Um, I don't know that he definitely thanks to Bob for for just a, a long history of, of you know great great support. So tireless support. I, I'll tell you one thing he did one time. We all rode in an event in, in uh, clear up in Quebec, way north of Montreal. And Bob, actually, we all caught flights out of there, and Bob drove all the way back solo, back to Southern California. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know how many miles, but it's a lot. And that's actually how he found Prescott, Arizona. He stopped in on the way and moved there and has never looked back. So um, that was dedication. That was a long, long haul. Uh, and so, yeah, he did a lot. Well, okay. Well, like I say, we really appreciate you spending this much time. Um, you know, as a, as a five-time national champion and kind of a ghost in our sport, this will be great for people to hear this and hear some of the history and everything and, and actually actually get some first-hand knowledge about what was going on back then. It's always been of interest to everybody. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still alive up here, no, not a ghost anymore, and uh, we're just going to try to climb some new mountains, that's all. Well, you've always got a invitation from us to come out to one of our nationals or even a world round and witness that and, uh, you know, maybe sign a few autographs again. Yeah, you haven't seen the last of me for sure. I'm, I'm at a point in life where it's becoming easier to to uh, do those kinds of things. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not done. <laughs> well, we wish you a lot of luck in the mountain bike event you're heading to this weekend and uh, really appreciate you spending the time on the phone. Thanks a lot. Good right. talking to you. Bro. Thank you. Bye.